Today begins the most holy and solemn season of the church year, one of the triumphs of the liturgical renewal in the Western churches over the last 40-plus years has been the restoration of these ancient liturgies. So every time I get to Palm Sunday, I think about something that I was taught in seminary, which is called Baumstark's Law. Anton Baumstark was a liturgical scholar in Germany in the first half of the 19th century, and he had a maxim that he always would use. In the most holy and solemn times of the Christian year, the most ancient and solemn services of worship are used. So what we're doing today in the Liturgy of the Palms and in the reading of the Passion Gospel go back a long way. They go back to at least the middle of the 4th century A.D. and perhaps even before that. And so it's time to reintroduce my old friend, Egeria, who kept a diary. She was a pilgrim from Gaul. And she went to Jerusalem in about 348, and she kept a diary of her travels. And the book is called Egeria's Travels. And I have a copy of it in my library, and it's interesting, because she records meticulously what it was that she saw and heard in Jerusalem during Holy Week. So the services of Palm Sunday the services of Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, the Great Vigil of Easter, uh, come at least in part from her descriptions of what she saw there. It's always difficult to preach during the great days and seasons because these liturgies explain themselves in some way. And yet they deal with subjects that are of sufficient uh, weight and depth that um, without sounding too highfalutin, a preacher does need to come into this and at least say something about what it is that we're here to do. So this morning in the Palm Sunday sermon for this year, I want to say some things to you about Matthew's version of the Passion, to say uh, to you something that I have mentioned over the last two or three years in my Palm Sunday and Good Friday sermons, and that is a growing concern of mine that there are many places within the Christian church, certainly in our own church, uh, some of my colleagues here who I'm very close to, who believe that we should stop reading the Passion Gospel on Palm Sunday, and they don't do it in their churches because they believe that it's just too weird, too violent, too full of suffering, and can't really have anything to do with the Christian message. So uh, I'm not one of those people, and uh, I have an obligation to all of you to make sure that not only are the liturgies of the church done properly, but that we don't get to God through avoidance. So that's one of the reasons I want to talk uh, about that. So let's say something about Matthew's gospel. Remember, there are four gospels. The gospels were put together over a period of time. They started out as an oral tradition. It was passed along orally. Then some of that oral tradition got written down. 
And then all of those traditions were put together and they produced four Gospels that are not identical in every respect. The core of every Gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the passion narrative. So the first piece of writing for all of these was the rehearsal of the passion. That's where for the early New Testament church, the rubber hit the road. So no doubt there were passion narratives written that were circulated among the early Christian communities and added on to those later were the other material that comes from the oral tradition and the other written sources that the individual gospel writers uh, had. Matthew... Mark and Luke and John all have a different tone to their passion narratives and a different theological emphasis. So Matthew today is concerned to focus on Jesus' kingship and that there is a paradox involved in this insofar as the kingship of Jesus involves a certain amount of going through terrific humiliation in order to get to the place where, as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, he has led the way to teach us something about how we negotiate terrible suffering and adversity and God's abiding presence in the midst of this, even though as human beings, including the Savior of the world, we cannot always see it or believe it. The quotation in Matthew's Gospel that is the leading candidate for the most ancient saying of Jesus in the Passion Narratives is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, Labak Sabachthani in Aramaic. And it is here that we see an embarrassment that has been set before the Christian church. Because Luke and John refused to quote Jesus. As he appears both in Matthew and, and in, in Mark. Remember on the first Sunday in Lent I mentioned to you that every year we read the story, one of the versions in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And at this temptation he confronts the full play of his humanity around what Father Thomas Keating calls our irrational programs for happiness that center themselves in security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And that as he goes through this resisting of the temptation and therefore provides for Christian people part of the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity, we also know that in the gospel witness, he will go through this again, just as you and I will go through this again. And in today's gospel, we see the Savior of the world throwing himself on the ground in the garden and asking God to relieve him of this responsibility, to forsake his vocation. 
And so too, when any of us are challenged or going through great periods of adversity and suffering and difficulty and, dare I say, humiliation, that we are tempted to chuck it ourselves. But what we learn from the gospel today is that Jesus goes through it, not around it, not over it, not under it. He goes through it. And the truth be told, that's how you and I get through that too. All of these things. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, tries to deal with the conundrum of why Jesus would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a mouthful. I'm not so sure what that absolutely means. But it's Paul trying to come to terms with how did this have to happen. And you know what I think? I think Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, death is the result of human self-satisfaction and smugness. And those attitudes, if they are allowed to grow within the human breast, produce things like this. There's no question about it. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, there are people in the, in the course of things who want uh, the good news of Jesus Christ which is the focus. Remember all of the things that we're going to preach and teach and talk about this week, which have to do with the judgment of God, which have to do with the death of the Savior of the world, that have to do with theories regarding God taking on human sinfulness and triumphing, triumphing over us and sort of releasing us from the, our penal responsibility to pay the piper. All of this is part of what the medieval theologians called God's strange work. His opus alienum. And we believe that the trump for this is God's proper work, which the medieval theologians said in Latin was his opus proprium. But it appears that you can't have one without the other. Luke Timothy Johnson, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, said in the Oxford Companion to Christian Thought, just as the cross confounded ancient Jews and Greeks by contradicting their conventional wisdom about God, so does it remain an obstinate challenge to every age that seeks to identify God's role with human comfort. H. Richard Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr's brother, was a guy I had to read in seminary, and he wrote in a book called The Kingdom of God in America in 1937 that there is a species of the Christianity that I have described to you earlier that believes in a God without wrath, bought brought human beings without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
That's not an old view, even though it was written 37, uh, in 1937. It's still around. We all wish that we could continue to float down an endless stream of grace. And so today we're faced to look at the cross and to see that somehow in some fashion that is the location of our salvation. Here's one of the reasons why, though, people may feel this way and why uh, we could see a reasonable reaction to this. Some of you may remember that several years ago now there was a movie that was produced by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ. Maybe some of you have seen it. The scenes that are depicted in The Passion of the Christ are never described in the Gospels. Nowhere is what is seen in that movie described in the Gospels. It isn't there. Where it's from is from the fevered imagination of a German nun who lived at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century by the name of Anne Catherine Emmerich. And she wrote these visions down. These books are very popular among ultra, ultra, ultra traditionalist Roman Catholics, of which Mel Gibson is one. But whatever Anne Catherine Emmerich has to say about this, or whatever she thinks she saw, it isn't the gospel witness. So if we begin to blur the lines between the fevered imaginations of certain kinds of Christian mystics and what the Gospels in their various tone and theological emphasis wish to lay before people, we too can often get extremely confused. Here's the other problem. You and I live in an era that wishes not to focus on these things because we believe in symptom relief. That's what we want. Symptom relief. I'm saying this to you now in a very cavalier fashion. Because if I was manifested any alarming symptoms of any kind, I would be willing to go take all my money out of the bank and give it to the doctor and say, get rid of these symptoms now. But nonetheless, in all of the great areas or systems of salvation... Religion, psychotherapy, politics, medicine, the quick fix is in. And for the first time in the Christian faith and life, this time of year, we focus on the fact that there are, at least from time to time, some things that you and I have to do, the hard work we have to do to get to the other side, where we come to terms with what's going on in our life, sometimes not happy, sometimes the incomprehensible demoralization that we feel as the result of our best thinking getting us here. And trying to figure out what it is that we're going to do. Now, I'm saying all this to you because, you know what? I know how it's going to turn out. And so do you. 
So what we celebrate this week is moving through it to get to where we know it's going to turn out. What Jesus Christ is by nature, you and I become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And that means that we are cooperators and participants in God's plan for the cosmos. And that those areas of our life that involve suffering and adversity can be coped with on the basis that the Savior of the world has been everywhere that we have been and has brought redemption out of all that. And if there's good news in Palm Sunday at all, that's it. Amen.